Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day School podcast, I'm speaking with Karen Coughlin. Karen is our security officer at Davidson Day. For as long as she can remember, Karen just wanted to help and protect others. After completing a degree in sociology, criminology, and law enforcement, she served our country in the United States Army. Following her service in the Army, Karen became a police officer in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department before joining Davidson Day in time for the 2021 school year. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Karen. Your journey is a really interesting one. Where did you grow up and what led you to Davidson Day? Yeah, and that's a really good question. So I grew up in North Canton, Ohio. It's about 10 minutes away from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, That's the best way, you know, of me telling people where I grew up. After graduating from high school, I almost joined the U.S. Army. I was stuck between that and do I do that first or do I go get my education? I ultimately ended up getting my education first. I went to the University of Akron, which is also where LeBron James grew up. He grew up in Akron, Ohio. So I majored in sociology, criminology, law enforcement. I also minored in corrections, received my Bachelor of Arts degree, and then later accepted a police recruit position with the Atlanta Police Department. So I moved down there. As soon as I got down there, they told me it's going to take about six to 12 months to get into the academy, which I was unaware of. I thought that I would start right away. So rather than waiting, I said, you know what, this is the best time for me to join the Army. It's something that I always wanted to do. So I moved back to Ohio, signed the paperwork at MEPS. I decided to become a a 35 Mike, which is a human intelligence collector. I shipped out to BASIC in February of 2013. I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Once I finished up there, I was sent to the human intelligence collector course at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. That was about a six-month course. It was, it was super hard, really difficult, but I was able to get through that. After that, we were told we were, we were going to be stationed permanently. So I ended up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which was kind of nice because my sister was in Raleigh, you know, about an hour and 15-minute drive. So it was nice having family nearby. I did three and a half years total active duty in the Army when I was coming out of it. I decided, okay, now it's my chance to go back into law enforcement, something that I'd always wanted to do. I wanted to stay in North Carolina because I had family in the area, so it just made sense. I wanted to be in a bigger city where there was more crime, there was more going on, and I had been to Charlotte once before, and I really kind of fell in love with the city overall. So it just seemed like the right fit. So I applied, I got hired a couple months later, moved down there. I lived in Charlotte for about a year before deciding to move to Huntersville, North Carolina. Was looking for more of, you know, a family feel. I wanted to kind of get away from the city, but still be close if I needed to get down there. So that's what I did. Then I I got pregnant and I had a daughter, you know, the best thing I've done in my life. So I, I started kind of juggling with my different options of what to do. Do I continue in the job that I was in as a police officer? Having her kind of changed my perspective on life, essentially. You know, as a police officer, I worked in a really busy division with a lot of crime. And each night I left, I would literally say goodbye to my dog and my two cats because I didn't know if that was going to be the last time I would see them. And I couldn't imagine doing that with my daughter. So I really kind of had a heart to heart with myself and ultimately decided that 
it was best for me to resign, which was really hard for me to come up with. It took me months to get to that decision. So I resigned, decided to stay at home with my daughter and really do that full time, which is what I did for about a year and a half. And then I was, you know, she became a little bit more independent and I felt like the time was right for me to move on from from being a stay-at-home mom and get back into workforce. So when I was doing that, I wanted to stay within that sector of security, but it was like, you know, I don't want to get back into law enforcement. I don't want to put myself in, you know, an incredible amount of danger every single day. So I stumbled across the job at Davidson Day, and this was back when COVID first became a thing and the schools were closing. But I said, you know what, I'm going to apply anyways. And that's what I did. And then I didn't hear anything for months, and I had interviewed with different places and you had actually reached out to me. I think in July, you sent me an email. And Davidson Day was always in the back of my head, even when I was interviewing with different places, because it just, it just seemed like the right fit for me. It's great that you're here. And in your application letter, you wrote, for as long as I can remember, I just wanted to help and protect people. What do you find most gratifying about helping and protecting others? I think that it's a very unique feeling when you're directly in charge and responsible for someone's safety and well-being. It's a very unique feeling. It's easily the most fulfilling part of all the jobs that I've had that have kind of been public safety based. Most of my jobs that I had were revolved around public safety. And so I was directly responsible for people's well-being and it's super fulfilling. You know, as a police officer, I always did what I what I need to do to get people out of certain situations. And I tried to always go above and beyond. Even if people didn't like me, I still wanted to leave, you know, that lasting memory of, hey, that officer was super helpful, you know, really helped me out. Maybe I wasn't as nice to them as I, as I should have been. Not me, but that person, mm-hmm. you know, talking to me. But I did my best in those situations. And also, I mean, I was able to save lives just by helping people. And it's, it's really rare in a job that you have that. But as a police officer, I mean, you could show up and somebody could be choking on something. I mean, there's just, there's so many different things that I came across and getting people out of, you know, domestic violence situations where if they didn't get out, they were going to be killed or severely injured. Or, I mean, even if I was just helping somebody by changing their tire for them, you know, which is a super massive inconvenience for a lot of people. And half the people don't know how to do that. Or pushing their vehicle out of the street. I knew that they appreciated those acts of kindness. And that that was super fulfilling for me overall. It's just a very unique feeling. And where do you think that comes from, that sort of desire to help others? I think growing up, I just, I was always helping people, or at least like I was always striving to, you know, when I was in school, like I'll, I'll never forget one of my best friends was getting bullied and I would take it upon myself to walk her to each class. And if it meant that I was a little bit late to my next class, that's what I did because I, I just cared about people, you know, differently than I think other people do. So when I was in school and, and I was getting into college and I was thinking about what do I want to do with my life? that was the first thing that came to mind was what job can I get into that allows me to help people on a daily basis in different situations and and becoming a cop was the number one thing. What does service mean to you? One of the seven core army values, the army values are ingrained in you from day one that you start basic training. You're quizzed on them. They really try to get you to to believe in that stuff. And, And I personally did. One of them is selfless service. So that means that you put the welfare, at least in the army, you put the welfare of the nation, the army, and your subordinates before your own. It's really not about you. It's about the team. 
And I had always felt that way. Even, you know, I, I played sports growing up. I was never, you know, an I person. I was always a, you know, team. So you do your duty loyally without thought of recognition or gain. So, and I really carried that with me when I was in the army, but also when I became a police officer. I selflessly served my community, even though most people disliked me because I wore a badge. I still put those people above myself, and, and I did what I had to do to help them in those moments. And how did you decide to join the army instead of other branches of the military? So I looked at the Air Force, just temporarily looked at the Air Force, and I, I knew I wanted to be in the intel community. So I would look at what jobs each branch had that revolved around intelligence, and it seemed like the Army had the best variety. So I came across the Human Intelligence Collector course, and I spoke to my recruiter about it. He gave me a little bit of info on that position, and it just seemed super interesting, and I thought that if I decided to get out of the Army, I could use that in some kind of civilian job. So it was really that specific job that lured me into the Army. And that leads perfectly into my next question is you served as a human intelligence collector in the army. So what was the training and then what were some of your roles and responsibilities? Yeah, so the, the training was pretty rigorous. It was at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. You could see Mexico from, from the back window. That's how close we were. Everyone there had a top secret clearance. You had to have that in order to even be in that course. But basically... It was all based around strategic debriefings and interrogations. That was all we did for six months. And it doesn't sound like much, but that was easily the hardest course I had ever gone through. And, and a lot of people didn't make it through. There's only like a certain percentage of people that actually go through that course and succeed. So we did a lot of different intel training exercises while we were there. We would go in the field and role play, different things like that. So basically my job was to do debriefings and interrogations, participate in different intelligence training operations. I did maintain my top secret sensitive compartmented information clearance. And then on top of that, I was chosen to be part of a specialized group at Fort Bragg. We call it Formica for short, but that's foreign military intelligence collection activities. So what, like in a nutshell, what we did, we would figure out where different members of of Fort Bragg were traveling, you know, which countries they were going to. And there's always different requirements for certain countries. So we would look at, okay, so what do we need to fill on the U.S. side? Like, what are the priorities for the United States? What are we missing? At that point, we would talk to them, hey, while you're in this country, look out for this, this, and this. They would do that. You know, they might be there for six months to a year. They would come back. We would debrief them on what they saw. And any information that they were able to gather, we would put into an Intel report. Super time consuming. It's really important that you get everything right and that it's a top secret form. And that would get pushed into the Intel community. Sometimes the White House would be viewing the reports, you know, depended on what was inside of them. So I did that for a while. I had the privilege of doing that. And it was it was really cool. I, I can't talk about specifics because yeah. most of it's classified. But that was a really, really cool opportunity that I had while I was at Fort Bragg. Can you share a little bit more about what transitioning from the Army to life as a civilian was like for you? What's something that you wish more people understood about this transition? So I would say transitioning from the Army and becoming a civilian, it was actually pretty easy for me. I've always been very structured. That's something that I've never had an issue with. So going into the Army and you know, every hour is planned out, every minute. I didn't struggle with that. So 
when I came out, I think the one thing that I struggled with was maybe the lack of structure. I was used to waking up every morning at 5.30, having PT, physical fitness, every single morning being in formation. It was different. Uh, it wasn't something that I personally really struggled with. There's a lot of people that can't handle that. They have to have a job where it's exactly like that or they just stay in the Army for you know their, their 20 years and retire. But for me, it was, it was actually a pretty easy transition overall. Something that I wish people would realize I mean, I guess realize that everyone is different in the way that they are transitioning out. You know, there's a lot of people that they do. They have a lot of PTSD. There's a lot of people that struggle with that. You know, suicide awareness, it's a big thing. I think some people think that it's only something that people are dealing with while they're in the military, but it's also something that people struggle with immensely when they get out. If not, it's even worse when people come out of military service, especially people that, you know, went to war and experienced different things. That transition for them is, is really, really hard. And I think there's a lot of awareness right now, but there are a lot of people that I think don't understand that. Then what led you to become a police officer with, with the CMPD? Did I say that right? <laughs> you did. Okay. <laughs> so I always wanted to work for a bigger police department. That's why when I was in college and I was looking at places to live, I knew I wasn't going to stay in Ohio. You know, my family had kind of left the area and I was the only one left and there was no point in me staying. So... I looked at Atlanta, big police department, lots of opportunities, and that was the main thing that kind of lured me there, was I, I wanted a bigger department that, you know, I could move up, I could get promoted, I could get into different divisions, do different things. I wanted that experience. Charlotte is a pretty big department overall. There's almost 2,000 officers. They might actually be at 2,000 now, but I think when I was looking, they were in like the 1,900 range, you know. Not too far south. I have family in the state. It just made sense, I think, in the moment. And all the interactions that I had with CMPD were really positive. They had a really good program over there. That academy was really, really good. So that was the reason for me staying in Charlotte and joining CMPD. How has being in the Army and police force influenced your perspective as a person and also as a mother? Yeah, so the Army really kind of solidified my personal and professional values of structure, discipline, teamwork, and integrity. Those are all things that are really, really important to me, and they're all things that I plan on passing down to my daughter as well. You know, I'm, I'm really a go-getter, and I pride myself on being proactive, and I'm like that in my personal life. I'm also like that in my professional life, and I, I really think that all those things are things that you need in order to be successful, whether you're in the military or you're a police officer or just in life in general. You need those things in order to be successful. So all those things I really plan on teaching my kid, you know, because I want her to be successful as well. But, you know, I think the biggest thing, when I became a cop, I stopped taking my life for granted overall you know, I was in such dangerous situations on a nightly basis. I worked third shift in a really busy division. We led the the city with part one crime, which is homicide, kidnappings, robberies, burglaries, assault with deadly weapons, anything violent you can imagine we led. And we also led the city for 
for calls for service. So we were just very busy. I mean, most nights it was call to call. You were lucky to get a bite to eat or use the bathroom. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I was in situations with kids where these kids literally had no way out. Like their parents had put them in such bad situations that they just didn't have a chance. And it was super, super sad. And it it always angered me. And I I told myself, you know, if I have a child, I will never put him or her, you know, in any kind of situation like that. I, I refuse to make the same mistakes that these people are making. Like, I, I want to give her the best life that I possibly can and, and just set her up for success. And I think the experience that I have and the things that I, I just talked about will, will help me with that with her. What's it like sort of stepping up and serving in the way that you are, going into these really challenging situations, and then stepping into your quote-unquote normal life, which is like, stable and structured? What's that like sort of moving in and out of those worlds sort of on a daily basis? Yeah, so it's super challenging. It's really hard. It's hard being able to shut your brain off when you come home. You really try to separate the two. You try to separate work from your home life. But when you're a police officer, it kind of consumes you, essentially, especially if you're if you're seeing certain things. There's things that I went through as a police officer and things that I saw that kind of still haunt me to this day. I, I still think about it. I don't need to try to think about it. It's just kind of on my mind. So it's hard spending 10 hours a night going through situation after situation and then coming home and trying to enjoy your home life, trying not to think about certain things that you saw, trying not to anticipate what you're going to see tonight. That was probably the biggest issue I had personally was just thinking, what, what am I going to go through tonight? You know, am I going to get myself out of it? So, yeah, I mean, it was always really hard for me to be able to not think about work when I was home. And the only thing that I could do was just I worked out every single day. You know, I I tried to, to deal with those stressors in a healthy, positive way. And that's kind of how I managed. And what sort of training do you get as you're in the academy? And, you know, you said you're you sort of like you're stepping off really alone or with a partner in sort of high stress situations, what training do you get in terms of managing those moments? So the academy is six months long. It's that long for a reason. There's obviously a lot of training that goes into that. So a lot of defensive tactics training, if you, because unfortunately it's a matter of time before you get into a situation where maybe you're one-on-one with somebody and you're trying to get yourself out of that situation and, you know, you're waiting for your backup. We, we didn't have partners. You rode solo and you didn't always have a partner on certain calls. So you had to know how to get yourself out of situations. Also, I mean, verbal judo, how do you communicate effectively with people to get them to comply? Or how do you actively listen to somebody? You know, a lot of people struggle with being able to actively listen to another human being. In my opinion, that's the biggest part of being a police officer is effectively communicating. If you can effectively communicate, I don't care how strong you are, because that's really irrelevant. That, to me, is the most important thing, is that you're, you're able to talk to people. How did your training in the Army sort of, like, help you as you became a police officer? Yeah, so obviously in the Army, my job was pretty much centered around talking to people. And that training that I received was very heavy in report writing because those reports sometimes were being reviewed by 
people in the Pentagon, the White House, so you had to know kind of what you were doing. So that was really helpful for me when I transitioned into being a police officer. I, I would say hands down, just being able to talk to people. Those interrogation techniques were really, really useful when I would get on a scene, you know, because every person that you're talking to, it's it's kind of like an interview. Mm. I would say that those were the main things that were useful for me when I was coming from being in the Army to, to being a cop. All parents want to keep their children safe, but there's also a balancing act as well. So what advice would you give to parents in regards to, as the children getting older, creating independence while also balancing safety? I also think it's important that parents realize that no matter how careful they are, bad things happen every day. You know, people get into car accidents. Just there, There's always crazy things that happen that are completely out of our control. And I think that we just have to accept that to a certain degree. At the same time, you want to take reasonable precautions with your kids and teach them the skills that they need in order to be safe when you're not around. But you don't want them to live in in some kind of restricted, fearful bubble. You have to allow them to go out there and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes, but just hope that they're not big ones, I think. And also, I mean, what's safe for one kid at a certain age may not be safe for another kid at the same age. They may require extra precautions for different reasons. So it's definitely situational, I think. But I just don't think that we should be anxious about what's going to happen to our kids. You have to be able to provide them with some kind of flexibility within the structure, I think, and and not be so overbearing to the point where the kids can't breathe. What's helpful is just playing a what-if game with your kids. So what if this happens? What if that happens? And you kind of talk them through things that could happen on in, in their daily lives when you're not there and how they should approach those situations. And that can be helpful. It makes you feel better that your kids are understanding those things and that their answers are actually good. Yeah. And it makes them feel better because maybe the kids aren't thinking about those certain situations. So I, I just think there's little things that you can do to just make make you feel better about it. But at some point, kids get older and you just kind of have to trust that they're going to make the right decisions. And if they get into a bad situation, that they know how to get themselves out of it. And that leads into the next question I have is, what are some of the biggest challenges that parents face in regards to keeping their children safe? And how are parents responding effectively to these challenges? Or how could they respond more effectively to these challenges? So I think the biggest challenge these days is definitely social media. I think the internet can be really useful for kids, you know, whether they're working on a project for school. There's good parts about allowing kids to have access to the internet, but there's also a side of it where you've got Facebook, you have Instagram, you have TikTok now, Snapchat, where the chats are deleting. That is a little bit scary. And I think a lot of kids, I don't know at what age kids are usually given phones. I didn't get a phone until I was almost in high school. But I think nowadays people give their kids phones, you know, elementary school age. So it's hard to really regulate what they're doing on those phones when you're not present. But there's a lot of risk. There's cyberbullying. There's inappropriate content that they can access. There's also online predators that kind of lurk on different sites 
I think it's important that parents talk with their kids, tell them what they expect from them, have rules and regulations on, you know, their phone usage or they're using a laptop, either one. Use certain tools to protect them. I think that a lot of times you can regulate, you know, what the kids are viewing on those devices, but also keep an eye on them, you know, check in on them. And and you don't have to be, what do they call it? Like a helicopter parent, Mm -hmm. someone that just constantly hovers, but just every once in a while, keeping an eye on them to make sure they're doing what they should be doing. I don't think that we're preparing the kids for different situations that they could get into. I don't know why. I think maybe some people are afraid to talk about dark things with their kids, but it's definitely relevant, I think. And again, I would I would definitely encourage parents to play those what if games with their kids and just, you know, kind of talk to them about what they should do in different scenarios that they get into. It's interesting you say that because we do clearly we do that this we do it at school, we have fire drills, we we have lockdown drills, those type of things. And just recently, my little one, Alicia, is in Eaglets, and one of the part of the homework was to like about fire safety. And so we had to walk our street and look at fire hydrant where the fire hydrants were, and then decide on a place where we would meet in case of a house fire. I'm embarrassed to say that like I've been a parent now for 10 years with my elders. We've never done that with Ruby. Like, and it was such a great activity like to do. And I was like, Oh, well, there's a, I never noticed that there. Like we've only lived there a few months, but still I, and it was, had me thinking that we should be doing that sort of more in other sort of emergency situations as well. And just thinking through that. And it's really resonated with, with what you said. So what are some of the other ones, I guess we could do at home? So it's fire safety, what to do if someone's at the door, I guess. I don't know. Like what are some of the things? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, fire safety is a big one. You hope that you never have a fire in the home. I, I know that concerns me. I think about my escape plan. Also what to do if the kids are alone, if they're old enough to be by themselves, and somebody rings the doorbell, somebody knocks on the door. I had a ring camera on my door, and which was super useful because I didn't have to go to the door to see who was there. Mm-hmm. I could just open my phone and, and talk to them through that, but not everybody has that. But if it's not there, you know, teaching them, hey, do we really need to open up the door for the strangers? I had calls when I was a police officer where that was someone's way of getting inside the house. Didn't happen with children. But I'm sure that that does happen. But the elderly, a lot of times, that was someone's way of getting in. Knocking on the door, they knew that they were going to answer and immediately would would just get into the house and completely just ransack the home. So you can talk about that. What to do if, you know, everyone's home at night and there's a burglary. Somebody gets into the house. You know, what's our plan? What's the escape plan? Emergency contacts. You know, if, if I'm not home, and you're by yourself and you need help, is there a list in the home? Who are the people that we call? Obviously 911 if you need it, but other contacts, other family members that may live in the area. And that's relevant even if the kids are out and say one gets lost at the supermarket. I will never forget, I had a call as a police officer. It was four or five in the morning and this little boy somehow made his way from his apartment complex about a mile down the street to the Speedway gas station by himself, freezing cold, only has a shirt on and shorts. And I'm asking him, what's your name? 
where do you live? What's your mom's name? What's your dad's name? He didn't know any of it. He didn't know basic information about himself that a kid that age should know. And it took me about an hour to figure out. I had to put him in the back of my car, and he had to point to the direction that he came from. And I eventually got him back to his apartment and obviously like had a very stern talking with his, with his mother. But it's things like that, just knowing your phone number, knowing your address, knowing your parents' names, you know, things like that are, are really useful. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Yeah, so the first book that I can think of is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I read that years ago. It, it always really stuck with me through through the years. And I think it's funny because the first habit is being proactive. And I kind of like pride myself on that. <laughs> so, yeah, I would, I would say that book. What are some things that you love doing in your free time? Yeah, so when I have free time... <laughs> I do have a daughter, and then I also have my dog, Junior. He's a, a six-year-old, seven-pound toy poodle. So when I have any kind of free time, I'm usually with the both of them. Aside from that, I do enjoy working out. Um, it's definitely a way that I just relieve everyday stress. Listening to music is also really something that I do throughout the day. And then if I feel like going hiking, I've always enjoyed that. And even if I if I don't want to drive somewhere and get to a trail, like if I just take a really long walk around the neighborhood, that's enough for me. I, I really enjoy that. And if you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? I would choose photography. Mm. Um, so I've always been really interested with taking photos. And I have an iPhone, so and my kid, I, I take some really good portrait photos. But I've always wondered, you know, if I got a really nice camera, they're expensive, but worth it. Got a really nice camera. I could take some super beautiful photos. And so, I mean, at some point I'd like to purchase one, like make that investment and maybe take a few classes to figure out how people are taking these really nice pictures. That's what I would do. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? So I would say just allowing things to happen the way that they're supposed to. Mm. I've always been very structured and I've always tried to control my life and where I was going. I've always had a plan. I've literally never gone through my life without a plan. But I, I'm at a point in my life where sometimes you just have to let things go and allow things to fall into place how they should. And that's been really hard for me, but it's something that I've worked on for the past few years. And just really learning to accept that there are certain things that I can change, but there's also certain things that I can't. And I just need to kind of, again, just breathe and, and let it go and let it happen the way it's supposed to. What advice would you give someone considering a military career or serving as a first responder? I would say for the military career, think about whether or not you want to spend 20 years in the military, what, what your plans are. You know, are you planning on using the military just to pay for school and coming out and doing something on the civilian side. If, if so, then try to choose a job that would be relevant to civilian life. That's what I did personally. I, I try to think about what I wanted to do when I was out of the military, you know, even though I, I thought I would stay in, but I wanted to have a backup plan to that. So I, I would say just looking at the big picture and just not paying attention to only like little things. And then with becoming a, an emergency responder, 
you know, realizing that it's not going to be easy and you're going to have like some really good moments and you're also going to have some really dark moments. And I think realizing that it's okay to ask for help. I think sometimes mental health is, for some reason, it's frowned upon and they offer it to you as a police officer. It's offered to you free through the department, but a lot of people don't take advantage of it. And just, I think just understanding that it's okay to, to ask for help if you need it, because you will go through some situations that will definitely alter you mentally and emotionally. And it's okay to, you know, use those resources that they're providing you with. It's such sound advice, really across the board. Thank you. And final question, what inspires you? I would have to say, hands down, being a mom. Cool. She truly makes me want to be a, a better person overall. And I, I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but that's, that's true. It's um, so true, yeah. Because I, I just feel like I have a direct influence on who she becomes as a person. I, and I think that's really special. And it's just, it's easily the most important job in the world. There's nothing that can beat that. So, yeah, she's my inspiration. What a great way to end. Karen, thanks so much for all your time today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.